This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, your host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Janetta Candelario, who is the editor of Meridians. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here, Christina. I am so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about Meridians and about the special anniversary edition that you recently released. But before we get into that, I wonder if you will please tell us a bit about yourself. Oh, okay. Well, um, my official title beyond being the editor of the journal is that I'm a full professor of sociology, Latin American and Latino studies at Smith College, and I am also affiliated with the Study of Women and Gender program and the Community Engagement and Social Change concentration. Um, I've been at Smith as a faculty member since 1999, officially. Before that, I was a uh, Mendenhall Fellow here, which is a a pre-doctoral dissertation fellowship program in the five colleges. Um, I am also a Smith alum, class of 90. where I was an economics major and a public policy minor. And I went to graduate school in New York at City University of New York Graduate Center. Um, My research area as a sociologist, um, my subfields are race and ethnicity and gender and society, but my focus is on uh, Dominican studies and specifically Dominican communities and racial identity in the United States. but also um, Dominican racial formation on the island in in the country. And most recently I've been working on a project documenting the very long history of feminism and feminists organizing in the Dominican Republic since the 19th century. And so that leads to my next question, which is if you could tell us a little bit about your own path through academia. You, you touched on it there, but listeners can be very curious about how people got from where they thought they would be to where they are now. 
Are those the fields you thought you would study? Um, how did you get from A to B? That's a, I love those questions because it gives me a chance to talk about my mom, actually. Um, I, I arrived at Smith, um, arrived in college thinking that I would be a journalist. That was my um, original life plan to, to be an investigative reporter, journalist, or as my mother would say, the first Latina Barbara Walters, right? Um, because, you know, it was the 80s and uh, women were finally taking a place in the media and um, becoming prominent as journalists and reporters and so forth. And um, that that's what I wanted to do. I um, had actually reinstated the high school newspaper at my high school, which had been defunct for several years for lack of a faculty advisor. And I talked my English teacher into being our faculty advisor, reinstated the, the school newspaper, um, was, was admitted into what's called the Urban Journalism Workshop that was um, founded by a really well-known African-American journalist at the Philadelphia Inquirer and was based at Ryder College in New Jersey. So I did that for a summer. And so, you know, I, I got to Smith thinking I would, I would be a journalist. The problem was I, I didn't know this as a, you know, Latina scholarship baby from Northern New Jersey that Smith College as an elite women's college with a very conventional liberal arts curriculum at the time um, did not offer pre-professional degrees. So journalism or communications or those sorts of degrees was absolutely not an option. Um, so I came in as an English major because I also I also loved literature and was on, on the high school literary magazine board. So I thought, well, you know, how, how different can that be? I'll just do an English major. Um, and, you know, was surprised to learn that, in fact, an English major in the 1980s at Smith College meant what we would now say dead white men, right? And and European lit and possibly American lit, but it was white American lit. There was little to no room for the stories, um, which ultimately was what I was interested in, the stories and perspectives of people like me or my family or those in my communities um, that I grew up in, whether they were you know, African-American or Latinos of various nationalities or, or even you know, working class white folks um, or white people who I also grew up around. Um, so, you know, I I found that that really sort of dissuaded me from from the English major. And you know, and, and to be frank, Smith itself and Northampton, the whole New England experience was really alienating, very alienating for me. And a series of racist incidents on this campus that targeted Latinas and Black students and Asian students with racist graffiti and you know, notes and just a variety of really hostile um, gestures, you know, and, and, and activities led me to leave Smith um, after three semesters here. I went back home to New Jersey, started working full time, went to NYU at night school as an adult student at 19, which, you know, I thought was hysterical because <laughs> I was really a traditional college age, but their continuing ed program was, you know, conceptualized for working adults, which I was, I was working full time. Um, and just kept taking classes at NYU, trying to work towards my degree. And that's where I actually took a, my first economics class and, and found it fascinating and that it was answering questions that I had about, about resources and, 
and economic well-being, which you know were a central part of the concerns that I had in the stories I wanted to tell. Um, so that coupled with the fact that trying to go to school um, at a at a rigorous institution like NYU and working full time, which I was, and staying in touch with friends that I had made at Smith, um, you know, and my mother hectoring me all eventually led me to reapply for admission at Smith after a couple of years of being away. So I did, um, came back, and at that point I had a better sense of, of what I wanted to major in here. So I chose an economics major with a public policy minor. Um, but even then there were still questions because I would be the student sitting in an econ class and learning about models and, and um, you know, graphs and trends and so forth, um, and markets that seemingly worked without any human beings, because I, I'd always ask the question, well, okay, but what about the people behind those points on the axis? And, you know, who's the market? We're the market. People are the market, right? And how is it okay for us to be comfortable with a 5% unemployment rate? That 5% unemployment rate, those are, those are my people who are out of jobs, right? So like, how do you explain this to me, professor such and such? And the answer was no, in, at least at that time. Now, you know, since then there, there's been a rise in behavioral economics, but at the time econ couldn't explain an answer to those questions other than, you know, rational economics and so forth. That still was not very effective to my mind as an explanation. Um, and, and what I was told was, so you're really not an economist, you're really a sociologist. Your discipline is sociology. I had only taken one intro to social class as an undergrad, wasn't particularly impressed by it. <laughs> um, but it turns out that the friends that I had here who were sociology majors and my econ professors and public policy professors really encouraged me to rethink that and to not base my assessment of a whole discipline on, on one not so great class. Um, so I ended up applying to, to attend graduate school in sociology with just one intro to social class under my belt and, um, you know, was, was accepted um, actually initially to NYU because I applied there again. I wanted to go back home to the, to the New York metropolitan area. Um, went to that program for just two semesters because it was not the right program for me. Again, they were excellent, a top-ranked program. They gave me full funding, which was wonderful. Um, but they did not have any faculty who were specialists in race and ethnicity um, or even ethnic studies or gender, never mind Latinos or Latin America. So back to work I went to reassess. I, I went to work actually at the Ford Foundation in the South Africa program. Got to meet Mandela while I did that, which was phenomenal, and Wangari Mathai and all these incredible um, activists and luminaries from the African continent. Uh, and um, reassessed in terms of where to apply for graduate school and ended up uh, realizing that the CUNY Graduate Center had the faculty that I needed who were sociologists and anthropologists, historians, et cetera, who did work on U.S. racial formation, Latino community formation, questions of the intersection of, of gender, race, class, et cetera. Um, people like Frank Bonilla, who founded the Puerto Rican Studies Center, and Juan Flores, who also was a, a key figure in that project, um, Silvio Torres Alian, and my classmate, Ramon Hernandez, who together co-founded the Dominican Studies Institute at City College, so that that was the place I needed to be, you know, really in the heart of Manhattan, back in my own community um, with these folks who were field establishers. 
And that's what I was doing. I was, I was, um, you know, pursuing that degree. And the question that I had that, that led me to that experience or to the desire to go to graduate school was my mother's question. Um, and that central question for her was about the nature of race and racism and racial violence in this country. Because when she arrived here as a political exile from the Dominican Republic, fleeing the dictatorship, she was surprised to learn that in this society, she was considered not only not white, but moreover, uh, a woman of color slash black. That was a surprise to her because in her country, she was categorized as a white woman. And she arrived in 1960 um, at the one of the peak moments, right, of the civil rights movement um, and, you know, had to had to deal with race and racism in the U.S. And um, she married my father, who was an immigrant from Italy. Um, that marriage did not last long. He had a lot of problems. Um, they had me and then actually having me is what pushed her to leave him because he was a very violent man. So she returned with me to the Dominican Republic during the the late 1960s and she returned to the second dictatorship basically um, on the island and you know we were there for a few years but but she wanted me to make to get my education here in this country so she came back with me for kindergarten Um, and that experience of of being re-racialized in the united states of going back to the dr dealing with political violence um, dealing with with misogyny and sexism in both places didn't matter if she was in Brooklyn or New Jersey or Santo Domingo, you know, male violence was endemic, um, patriarchy is endemic. Um, and then, you know, coming back as a single mom, basically trying to make her way, you know, through this society and constantly dealing with race and racism in every sphere, right? So, the perennial question for her as I was growing up was, you know, explain this to me. You, she would say, you were born here. I should say to me, the five-year-old, you were born here. What is it with these people? And I, I don't know. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, I joke, but really that question was very much a question that affected the material conditions of our lives, right? Like why, why am I not being rented this apartment? Why am I not being given this job? Why are we being treated this way at the doctor's office or, at the checkout counter and so forth. Um, and, you know, so, so, and then my own experience coming to Smith as a, as a very white presenting, cause I, I do look more like my father than my mom, um, but as a very white presenting Latina with an accent from Northern New Jersey and, and being called, I don't know if I can say this word on the podcast, but being called racial slurs, I, I was going to say it, but I'm not going to, um, the slur for Latinos by Smithies, um, and being, you know, subjected to racism here, which wasn't supposed to happen, right? Um, Because I had experienced racism growing up. I had, you know, had schoolyard fights and been called the S word and so forth. But my mom thought that coming to a place like Smith, that that would no longer happen. And it turns out she was mistaken. It happened here too. It's part of the American condition. And all of those experiences, hers, mine, and ours, led me to the research project of trying to make sense of Dominican racial identity formations, how those compare to U.S. racial formation systems and orders, the place of 
of white supremacy and, and anti-blackness in both of these societies and the links between those systems and the two societies and how individual Dominicans navigate that landscape um, as they move back and forth across the two geographies and across what we now call a transnational social field. Um, so I, my first book, which is based on that dissertation work, is called Black Behind the Ears, Dominican Racial Identity from Museums to Beauty Shops. Because it's also an intersectional study. You know, Obviously, I understood that, that gender matters a great deal in that experience. It certainly mattered for my mother and me and the women in our family. Um, and yeah, and then that project led me to the project I'm currently working on, which is the long history of Dominican feminist activism, organizing, and identity. Dominican women have been calling themselves feminists since the 19th century. Um, and so that's the project I'm working on now. And I've done you know, some other things in between those smaller projects, community-based work, but those really are my two, my two big uh, research interests, and that's how I came to them. It's, a lot of it is based on life experience, biography. Thank you for sharing your road. Um, you can and should say anything on the podcast that is right for you to say. Any words you need to use, anything you want and need to say. Okay, thanks. Um, also, I wonder if we could circle back for one moment. You said when you left Smith, your mom was hectoring you to go back. Mm-hmm. Your family of origin story, your mom's role in your life is deeply intertwined with yours, um, as I believe for all of us who have done the work um, to look back and, and really uh, see how who we've always been informs how we, how we are in this world. Why was your mom invested in you going back to Smith? What did that mean to her? Well, so many things, um, so which the, in a nutshell, what she would say was, I survived a dictatorship and I survived immigration and I survived your father so that you could have all the educational opportunities that I didn't get to have. And you're going to tell me that, that being harassed by a bunch of rich girls in Northampton and at Smith is going to break you? that's not the way the women in our family are made. So you get back up there and figure it out. <laughs> I mean, in so many words, right? Um, and, you know, it, it did offer me valuable perspective. I mean, the, the truth was, I don't know that my mom really could fully appreciate exactly how hurtful uh, and, and traumatizing in some ways those experiences here were. But, but at the end of the day, she was right. They, they paled dramatically by comparison to what she had experienced in being born and raised in dictatorship and in a really violent patriarchal household, her, her own personal household. Um, and then, you know, having married badly and a man who was also violent and um, damaging. So, and that, that what, what motivated her through all of that was a deep desire to to learn. So my mom's motto when I was growing up, and I actually, I did a TED talk by this title and I've published an article about why I do community-based learning is rooted in this motto that she, she used as her lifeboat all the way through her life. And that she then like 
gave to me, which is saber es poder, which means knowledge is power. It means a lot of things, but that's the, the fundamental meaning. It means knowledge is power. It also means like, you know, you, you, you have to learn how to do things and then you can, you can power, you can empower yourself, right? You can get, you can get through anything if you, if you figure things out, right? Um, and no, and it also means like you have to figure out who, who to ask, right? Where to go for information, like the whole, the whole web of what, what we mean by knowledge and knowing and, to be in the know and to know who you need to know and all that stuff, right? Um, and and she believed that because in her in her childhood family, her father, um, hewed to a very patriarchal, misogynist view that said that girls only needed a third grade education, that they needed to you know the three R's: writing, arithmetic, and and whatever the other one was, um, and. And that was it, basic math, basic reading, basic literacy. Um, and they needed that so that they could help manage their household economy. And, and that too much learning makes uppity women, which is true, right? Like he's absolutely right. <laughs> it, it makes us think we're human, right? So, so he pulled my mom and all the girls in her family out of school after third grade. But my mom would tell me the story that her teacher loved her so much and loved her love of knowledge so much that while everybody else was having the after lunch siesta, which was which was culturally normative, right? So you'd have your noonday meal was the big meal from 11 to one, whole family gets together, you know, all work stops, you have a big, big meal, and then you, you have a siesta from one to about three, because it's the highest, the hottest point of the day, right? And so it's just better for everyone to be indoors at that point. Well, my, my mom's teacher would forego her siesta and so would my mother, my mom would sneak out of the farm because they lived on a, on a farm and make her way, you know, the mile and a half down the road to this teacher's house. And they would hide under the house because the house was built up on like stilts so that it would be elevated from, you know, bugs and snakes and things in the ground. And, and the two of them would hide under the house because of the shade, but also to not be seen while the teacher would continue to teach my mom more advanced math and and would read to her from classics of literature right unbeknownst to her dad and so forth and you know so so education to my mother was this like precious thing right that she had to fight to get and when she arrived in this country she immediately enrolled herself in school the spanish american institute to learn english to learn how to translate the work skills that she had from her country to this country and and my mother also um, eventually made her way to Rutgers University um, by the, when we came back. Like when we came back, when she brought me back as a kindergartner, she um, managed to get herself enrolled at Rutgers through a special program for mothers on AFDC at the time that was still available. And she went to school part-time all the way through my elementary school year. So I always joke that I got two college degrees because I went with my mother to Rutgers at night. She would go to school at night with me and she'd take me with her and I'd sit in on all her classes with her. So technically I'm not a first generation student, although I am in the sense that the experience that we had as you know, nighttime commuting students, immigrant single mom, daughter was not, is not the conventional, you know, residential elite New England college experience. Um, 
it it was work. It was more like work. And but what it meant for me was that I I um, learned alongside my mom. Like we would read classics of U.S. literature together, like Edgar Allan Poe and stuff. And I'd have to help translate words that she didn't understand and things like that. So it was a hardship, but it was also a blessing. And it formed my own sensibilities around all of it, around higher education, education in general, around community, around um, access. You know, so we have an Ada Comstock scholar program at Smith that's for non-traditional age students. And many of those students um, have children. So my, my position always when I have an Ada in my class is to say to them, if you have children, I want you to feel comfortable bringing your child to class. If there's a snow day, a sick day, holiday at school, and you can't find childcare, I don't want you to miss class because of that. I want you to come to my class and we will help you take care of your kid so you can be here because I was that kid. I was that child 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And, you know, we can do this together. Um, and that all comes from my mom, you know, just like that she, um, she was going to figure it out because it was that important. And she would say, they can take everything from you. They can take your country. They can take your family. They can take, you know, everything you have, all your money, but they can't take what you have inside your heart and inside your head. You mentioned that when you came to Smith, you were thinking, you know, English major, and then it was all dead white men's greatest hits. When your mom was at Rutgers, was she offered any representational uh, voices or was she, when you were in those classes with her and when you were translating things for her, was she offered dead white men's greatest hits only? In, in, the, in the kind of gen lit class, yes. But um, my mother went to Rutgers Newark just after the Newark riots. And when the Black Panthers and... Uh, uh, Angela Davis had spoken, <laughs> uh, and there were Young Lords and Black Panther students at Rutgers and in Newark, and my mom gravitated to them. Um, so her study partners <laughs> were Black Panthers and Young Lords classmates, and um, they had successfully advocated for Afro-Am classes. They were called Afro-Am at the time. You know, then it became African American Studies, and now it's Africana or Black Studies. But my mom took Afro-Am classes at Rutgers in this context, Rutgers Newark, and you know I again sat in with her. And her her best friends were were black women and Puerto Rican women who were also mothers on AFDC with children who were going through this program. So, you know, I, that's who my peer group was in that context. And these ladies would study together. They would make up like they would take turns on a Sunday who was going to cook, and they would gather together and who's ever house, right? And all the little kids would run around together while the moms were <laughs> reading, you know, Angela Davis or whatever. Um, so that's where she got her exposure to, to race and ethnic studies in the U.S. But it also was part of what drove her questions because, you know, again, like she tells the story about her first day sitting in a, maybe it was even an Afro-Am class, but she, she walks into this class and she's sitting there and she looks over and she sees this woman who to her looks Latina. And in fact, she looks Dominican. She looks like, like her, she could be my mom's sister. So she leans over and she, you know, says in Spanish, "Oye, you know, que tú sabes del profesor?" Right? Like 
typical pre-class chatter, like, hey, what do you know about the professor or whatever? And the woman turns to her and says, yo no hablo espanol. And my mother laughs. Oh, cut it out. You're so funny. Ha, ha, of course you speak Spanish. But, you know, talks to her again. And the woman again says, no, yo no hablo espanol. Yo soy negra, <laughs> which means I don't speak Spanish. I'm black. And my mother laughs again and says, you're not black. What are you talking about? You're the same color as me. And she's like, I'm black. I'm black from the South. My name is Dottie. I'm black. Okay. I don't know about you. My mother was like, you're black. Okay. So what does that mean? Right. So then they started this friendship. And that's where, again, those questions would come up because my mom was like, I don't understand. Like, okay, why are you black? Like, why? I don't. Why? What makes you black? You're white. Like, we're white. And Dottie'd be like, no, no, we're not. In this country, we're black. Here's why. Here's what it means. This is why we're talking about black power. You know, and, and, and that was, again, one of those contexts that drove her questions. And then my own research was, well, you know, why is this so different from the Dominican Republic? Um, and what does it mean for Dominicans when they come here? Right? Like, where do they fit in this system? Um, so that, that was where she got exposed, was through Afro-Am classes and through these uh, social relationships with, with African-Americans and Puerto Ricans in, in Rutgers, Newark. Um, and then, and of course, in the neighborhoods that we lived in. But, but those really were, I think, formative in terms of exposure to U.S. literature around these questions. But, but it didn't come through like the Gen Lit class at all. Your mom really modeled for you about being very intentional. And it sounds quite direct in going up to people and saying, will you be my people? This is the work I, I you know, I'm, I'm going to draw you in to do, or I'm going to follow the work that you're doing because you have something and I want to know about it. And that was a difficult thing for you to find at Smith. And yet now you are there uh, as a full professor and you are the editor of Meridians, which is a journal on feminism, race, and transnationalism. The 20th anniversary reader just came out. And I'm struck by how that book is an intentional community creation. It is. <laughs> That's very. I'm so glad that you um, that you discern that, Christina, because it is. It is very much, and in fact, I I talk about Meridians as exactly that, as a project and as a community. And um, when we did the 20th anniversary celebration, that really was very much made manifest. The celebration, which was in May, was based on um, the authors who were included in this reader. Not everyone who was in the reader was able to, to join us, but most were. And, and what became clear was exactly that sense of, of community and shared commitments to social justice and political transformation um, and to the power of the word in, in moving that project forward. Um, and yes, I mean, that, that very much was modeled for me by my mom. Um, so I said I left Smith when I came back the second time. I I took a page from that book of hers and and lived off campus, so that I could assess who my people here would be, not just based on circumstance, like we live in the same dorm, but to actually actively seek them out. So I did, and and that transformed my experience here. Um, it's also what I think allowed me to return as a faculty member. So I came back as a, as a pre-doctoral fellow, not thinking that I would be here as a faculty member. It really it was a surprise to me that it worked out that way. Um, but but um, it has informed how I approach 
my own students uh, in terms of having an empathy for their experience. Um, and yeah, and how I do the work at Meridian is very much because I do think about it that way, that, that we may be the one or the two or the three in our departments or campuses, but in a space like Meridian's, you know, we're together, right? And, and there's lots of us. <laughs> one of the things that I am really drawn to about Meridian's uh, that to me makes it distinctive from other journals is the ways that voices are included. There is poetry, there is memoir, there is essay, there is stunning um, visual art on, on the cover of each Marinian's journal, as well as the, the 20th anniversary reader, as well as um, a full one-page um, statement by the author of um, what is the message the and the underlying in the creation of, of the art. Obviously, art is always meant for an engagement between the artist and the the viewer, and the viewer brings quite a lot, but for the author's voice to be included in this dialogue, as well as the author's, um, uh, the artist's images, uh, for, the, for the artist to be able to speak in both ways is um, beautiful. Um, usually in galleries, what's near the art is written by the gallery itself, mm-hmm. not, not the artist speaking um, also in words about their own um, images. And the, the way that this all comes together is an opening of a number of ways of using your voice. Absolutely. Yeah, so I mean, so I, I titled my intro in the reader Speaking Our Peace, but peace is spelled P-E-A-C-E, because um, I, I didn't mean it in both ways, like having our say, um, but also that ultimately our say is intended to generate a better world um, in whatever small way we can. And the art, you're right. I mean, so so the the art on the cover was the initiative of the second editor of the journal, um, Miriam Shansi, who's a scholar of Haitian studies, um, Dominican women's Haitian, I'm sorry, Haitian women's history, and she's also a poet and a and a novelist. Of her her poem. Um, about the earthquake in Haiti in 2010 actually is included in this volume. But it was her her initiative to include artwork on the cover of the journal. So that began in, in year three, and we've sustained it ever since, precisely for the reason that you're you're intu- intuiting there, Christina, that, that one of our core missions and um, understandings is that what, what we're trying to showcase and offer a space for is what we call women of color, feminist women of color knowledge production or women of color feminist knowledge production. And we say knowledge production instead of just scholarship because we understand that creative work like poetry, short story, creative nonfiction like memoir, experimental essays, and also visual art, whether it's painting or watercolor or photography, or sculpture, et cetera, three-dimensional work, um, that all of those are forms of knowledge production and of theorizing um, in that they are representing and conveying 
the experiences and perspectives and histories of women of color and communities of color um, in the US and transnationally and globally, right? So racialized, but we used to say racialized minority communities, you know, that's really what we mean. Um, and, and so the visual art on the covers really does exemplify that commitment to knowledge production in all its forms, right? Living, not only living alongside, but, but in conversation with and in dialogue with more conventional scholarship, which we also really are committed to. I mean, so one of the, one of the concerns, unfortunately, um, but it is in fact the case, that was in place when Meridians was established, and it's still, still a concern today, was that, that that project of centering women of color feminist knowledge production would be um, denigrated, essentially, or undermined or devalued by the, the conventional, historically white-serving academy. And um, one of the agendas of Meridians was exactly the opposite, was to authorize this kind of scholarship and work, um, but also to make it clear to the powers that were and that continue to be that this is, that this is not subpar, this is not um, inferior <laughs> work, that in fact it is um, often exceeds the rigor and expectation of conventional scholarship. So the way that we, that we convey that is through a double-blind peer review system. We make sure that everything we published is double-blind peer reviewed um, by ideally two, sometimes three, at a minimum one peer reader. Um, and, and that is the gold standard in academic publishing, the double-blind peer review. So we, we hew and adhere to the gold standard of academic publishing while also creating this space for, for precisely the people that the historically white-serving conventional academy did not want in the space. <laughs> so, um, and in that, we've been very successful. So, you know, all of it's just to say that, yes, giving voice to all of these knowledge producers, the artists, the creative writers, the, the scholars, the activists, because we also publish um, what we call in the trenches pieces, which are from activist reports, um, and also the archives. We, we try to include in almost every issue what we call in the archives, some, some, some archival document that offers evidence of the long history of women of color, feminist organizing and knowledge production and political activism and so forth. So voices from the past and the present. So speaking of voices of the past, if we could let listeners know about how Meridians came to be 20 years ago, um, if you could tell us a bit about uh, the founder of it and why uh, it was started at Smith. Yeah, absolutely. So Meridians was the brainchild of four or five Smith faculty members, um, Nancy Saporta Sternbeck, who, as it happens, was my professor. She taught Spanish at Smith, and she taught the first Latina and Latin American women's literature class here, um, which I took. I was her student in that class. Uh, and Susan Van Dyne, who was the founder, the co-founder of what was at the time the Women's Studies Program at Smith, which was founded in the late 
70s, early 80s. It was among the first women's studies programs in the country. And in fact, Susan's sort of national claim to fame is that she uh, became a consultant across the country to other universities um, trying to establish, faculty trying to establish women's studies programs. Um, uh, Elizabeth Alexander, who, as you may know, was the National Poet Laureate who wrote the poem for Barack Obama's inauguration. She's currently the president of the Mellon Foundation. Um, and she was the founder at Smith of the Poetry Center here. Um, and Anne Arnett Ferguson, who was a scholar in what at the time was the Afro-American Studies Program, um, who was a sociologist who wrote the book Bad Boys, which focused on the experience of young black men in, in education, particularly K through 12 and their presumptive criminalization. Um, so these four women um, specifically began this conversation, you know, sort of over lunch one day um, where they were uh, bemoaning the fact that, that while there had been established at that point for about a decade, a little bit more in some cases, women's studies journals, such as Signs and Feminist Studies and Gender and Society, those journals still uh, presumed a white woman subject as as woman in women's studies or in this scholarship. And when they included women of color, black women, Latinas, Asian American, Native American, et cetera, it was always as a kind of add one and stir, right? Or a plus one or token representation. Very rarely um, as a generative center of the project. Um, so that conversation coincided, or maybe it happened because we also had at the time the first black woman president of Smith College, Ruth Simmons, who had, had come to Smith in um, the late 90s and brought with her an ethos or a vision that was incredibly um, expansive and transformative and, and basically conveyed to faculty, if you have a, a wonderful project, an innovative project, I will find the money for it. I will, I will secure the funding for it, that project. So come to me with ideas and we'll see what we can make happen. So these uh, four faculty members, Nancy and Susan and Anne and Elizabeth, went to Ruth and said, we have this idea. We think that we can establish a journal that, that addresses the, the central problem of these other journals by centering women of color knowledge production, feminist women of color knowledge production, feminism, race, and transnationalism. We can do that. We can do that here at Smith. In fact, Smith should be doing this. We can be a leader in this project. Um, we have the resources as, as a as a group, okay, and we can extend outside the four to include a, 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 an on-campus advisory board. And with our social networks, we can generate submissions to, to this project to get us started. And Ruth said, I believe in that project. I'm going to help you get the, I'm gonna get some funding, to seed money to get this going. We'll take it from there. And, and that is exactly how it happened. It began as an editorial collective with those four, and then ultimately, I think like eight, 10 faculty members. Um, eventually that included me in year two. I was now on, at Smith on, on campus as a new faculty member, et cetera. 
uh, and they edited the first issue as a collective and then went through the process of helping to hire Kumkum Bhavnani, who was our first formal editor. And, and I was involved in that process as well. Um, so that's how, that's how we launched and, and it continued from there. So we've now been, actually, this is our 21st year. We celebrated the 20th anniversary in the spring because of the pandemic forced us to delay it, but um, it's actually been 21 years now. And we've grown exponentially since then. And 2017, you became the editor. How did you get that job? I, in listening to you, I'm thinking, of course, you're perfect for the job. But we also know from so many people's stories, the perfect person for the job is often overlooked. How did they, um, how did you get this job that's so perfect for you? Well, you know how they say, Christina, that never, make sure you're always in the room, otherwise someone will volunteer you for something. <laughs> I was not in the room. I was in the Dominican Republic, actually, on a Fulbright when um, a group of faculty were meeting with the editor at the time, Paula Giddings, who was our third and longest running editor of the journal. She um, came on board. She was actually hired at Smith specifically for that role eventually. And after a few years in, um, on the faculty in Africana, she did step into the role of editor and was in that position from 2012. Oh gosh, 20, I can't remember now, but until 2017, 12 years, 2005 to 2017. And Paula was, was getting ready to retire. It was 2015, 2016. So she, you know, sounds the alert to the um, editorial advisory board members and gathers everyone in the room and says, you know, I'm, I'm going to be retiring. We need to identify someone to, to take over this, this job. Uh, and also we need to do some work on increasing funding because over the years, as, as we hit the 2008 fiscal crisis, and then we also had um, a staff member who became ill at the journal. So the kind of perfect storm of events meant that the resources for Meridians had been dramatically reduced. And that coincided with Paula's forthcoming retirement. Um, so this very clever and creative group of faculty decided that the thing to do would be to hold a major conference where we brought together many of the contributors to the journal to celebrate Paula's retirement um, and to showcase Meridians and, and the work that it had been doing to that point by way of inspiring increased um, resourcing from the college. So, so that was the first part of it. I was there for the beginning of that conversation, but then I left to go do a Fulbright uh, semester in the Dominican Republic working on this project that I mentioned about Dominican feminism. And while I was away and this group was continuing to do the planning for the conference and to brainstorm, okay, who, who, could, who could take over for Paula? One of my colleagues said, wait a minute, hasn't Janetta been involved with the journal almost since the beginning? And you know, the consensus, well, yeah, actually she was. She, my, I was published in volume one, number one. I became a member of the board as of volume two. I helped hire Kumkum and Miriam and Paula <laughs> to the job. I continued to do peer reviewing for the journal over time. And, you know, I, I just had always been involved in Meridians in, in the years I'd been on the faculty. And uh, they decided, well, obviously she's, she should be the one. <laughs> so, they let me know <laughs> um, by calling me when I was in the Dominican Republic and saying, you know, we, we really think that you would be the, the next logical editor 
would you be interested? And I, um, at the time, was still an associate professor. And I said, you know, I would, I, I'm flattered. It would never have occurred to me that I should be the editor of the journal at all. It just literally would not have crossed my mind. Um, I'm interested, but I can't do that unless I'm a full professor. So I need to to then go up for full professor when I return. And then if that works out, I will, I will most certainly consider it seriously. So I came back from my Fulbright. I put myself up for a promotion to full, which I, you know, also was long overdue for. I just, I spent 10 years mid-career for the reason that many women spend 10 years mid-career. I was raising my kids. I was doing tremendous amounts of service work, far too much, far more than my male colleagues, um, and not really um, giving myself the credit that I deserved in terms of recognizing until that moment of that conversation that that actually I, I more than qualified for promotion to full. I just hadn't, I just hadn't seen it, right? Or, or taken the chance. So I put myself up for promotion. It was made official in March of the following semester. So at that point, um, I said, yes, I, I will take the editorship. And it was just in time because Paula retired in July. So I, um, I took the baton on July 1st, 2017, and uh, was able to also negotiate a full-time editorial assistant, which uh, Paula was working without for several years, actually, and a new space for Meridians and a little bit of a budget. Um, so, so this is where we are now. Uh, and I've, I've loved it. I'm, I feel really um, very, you know, very grateful for the opportunity. It's been a wonderful learning experience for me. And it's been wonderful to, to be in this community. What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? I hope it sparks their curiosity about Meridians. I would really like to see folks, whether they're scholars or not, academics or not, going in and looking at the issues, thinking of us as a resource. It really is a treasure trove. For folks who know about Meridians, there's, there's an understanding that, that Meridians is valuable, but I think there's so many more people who could and should know about Meridians um, who could teach it, use it in the classroom across so many disciplines. I mean, the obvious ones would be, you know, women and gender study and Latin American, African studies, like area studies of various kinds, um, race and ethnicity studies, global studies, um, but even international relations and the more kind of conservative traditional disciplines would do well to use Meridian scholarship and to teach Meridians in their classrooms. Um, but I also have been working really hard to, to expand the activist element of what Meridians does and making us accessible outside the academy and outside the, the paywall um, through our website. So I hope people would Google Meridians, Feminism, Race, Transnationalism, Smith, and they'll hit our website, which is, you know, it's a kind of odd website address, but it's there. And we, we post what we call on the line compliments to the journal that are audio visual um, compliments to the to the stuff that's printed in the journal um, and also when folks reach out to me including like I've gotten requests from across the world from Pakistan and Brazil and so forth I'm asking for the entire collection for women's colleges or girls schools in the global south and I will ship out a box of all 20 years of meridians to 
those institutions so that they can have us on their shelves in the library. Um, and also so that activists can, can use Meridians as a resource, particularly the, in the archives pieces and so forth. Um, that, that often, you know, so, so I'll give you an example. Um, as I said, I, I have been working on the history of feminism in the DR. And the thing that is always surprising, even to people in the Dominican Republic, because it's little known history, is that women have been calling themselves feminists in the Dominican Republic since the 1980s, I mean, the 1880s, excuse me, and the 1890s. And that men were embracing a feminist label for themselves and publishing letters in support of feminism in the newspapers in the late 1890s and the early 20th century in the Dominican Republic before the dictatorship. Okay, so there was there was a sort of publicly acknowledged feminist agenda and movement and so forth, and it was it was for everyone. It was for women and for men. And I can say that because I have the archives to prove it. I have the the newspaper articles and the pamphlets and the posters and the letters and the diaries and so forth um, that I can publish and offer evidence so that when regressive, patriarchal, misogynist, sexist forces uh, in the Dominican Republic say, well, feminism was an import and an imposition from the United States. Feminism was, was something that came from the gringos abroad. Okay, Our women are not feminist. I and they can say that is historically inaccurate. In fact, Dominican women called themselves feminists before the gringas did, before white women did, before even black women did in the U.S., okay? They called themselves feminists, and they they had these agendas. And in fact, they reached out to black and white women in the U.S. to try and collaborate with them. It wasn't the U.S. coming to them, right? Um, so that that putting history into action, that saber es poder, knowledge is power, right? Vision um, is what I hope people will know about Meridians, that that's manifest in in what we publish in the journal, which I hope folks can get access to, but also through our website, that there are, there are ways into Meridians through the website that are there conscientiously and purposefully to democratize that access. Because, because I believe, we believe that knowledge is power and that, that, that there's so much rich knowledge in Meridians produced by hundreds of just brilliant, brilliant, scholars, activists, poets, visual artists, photographers, you know, writers of various kinds. Um, and it's there for the taking, right? It's, it's there for the taking and, it, and it, it's transformative and it's empowering. Uh, so that's what I hope listeners will know, that, that, that their curiosity will be piqued, that they'll go in and they'll take a look and they'll see like the things that we've published. I mean, we are coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and the journal was founded in 2000. So 9-11 was literally the set following year. The, the second issue, the second volume of the journal was coincident with 9-11. So we published a feminist archive of 9-11. Uh, elements of that are in this 20th anniversary reader that, that, that you are profiling today, Christina. And it was prescient. It was prescient. Um, as was Sunera Tovani's uh, speech on war, and um, the writing in return, um, the September 11 Feminist Archive, Transnational Feminist Practice Against Wars, Sunera uh, speech, the first writing since by Sohir Hamad, the poet. I mean, you know, all of this, right? 
we were there and we were documenting it and, and reacting in real time. And you can look back on that as we did back in May and, and take stock, right? And Meridians offers that. We will provide uh, a link to the 20th anniversary reader. Uh, we'll attach it to this episode. The 20th anniversary reader is 559 pages long. It has so much in it um, for professors to assign, for scholars to devour, for students to learn from. Dr. Candelario, thank you so much for being here today on The Academic Life and telling us about your job as the editor of Meridians and your own academic journey. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You've been listening to New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.